Part One, Chapter Nine of The Uttermost Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Uttermost Star and Other Gleams of Fancy by Frank W. Borum. The Miser of Murdstone Creek. For nearly an hour, we had seen no sign of human habitation. We were motoring along one of our great Australian high roads and the dense bush ran riot everywhere. All at once we saw, right ahead of us, a little old man with long, shaggy beard, leaning heavily on a stick. He'd evidently emerged from the bush on our right, and was leisurely crossing the road. He moved slowly and painfully until he reached the center of the highway. At that moment he heard, for the first time, the throbbing of the car. He paused, glanced furtively toward us, and then, startled and terrified, he shambled on as quickly as he could go, diving into the thick scrub on our left. When we reached the spot, we pulled up, but could see no sign of him. A couple of miles farther on, we came upon the little township of Murdstone, nestling among the foothills of the western tiers. In ordering some refreshment, we reported what we had seen. "'Oh, that was nothing,' replied the good woman, as she went on laying the cloth for our entertainment." That was old Father Grab, as the boys call him, the miser of Murdstone Creek. He lives in a hollow tree down the gully, near the stream. He hates to be seen by anybody. It's a wonder that he allowed you to catch sight of him. You must have come quickly round the bend after he got out into the open. An hour later we had left Murdstone and its miser long way behind us, and the matter slipped from our remembrance. But somehow it has rushed back upon my mind this evening. The miser is a model for us all. I know, of course, that it is considered correct to vilify and malign him. But that is nothing to go by. The crowd often crucifies those whom it should crown, and crowns those whom it should crucify. These things go by fashion. Near a large public school I saw the other day a group of boys, just released from their tasks. One of them espied a sparrow sitting on a paling fence fifty yards away. Instantly he stooped, seized a stone, and threw it at the bird. A second boy followed suit, then another and another, until before the bird took wing, almost the entire group was engaged in throwing stones at the sparrow. In the same way, somebody once threw a stone at the miser. Somebody else followed, and so on, until now it is considered quite the correct thing to say the bitterest things that can possibly be said about this unhappy man. I have seen a good deal of misers, says the poet at the breakfast table and I think I understand them as well as most people do. Indeed, he became an amateur miser himself. He tells us in another place that he once kept a little gold by him in order to ascertain the exact amount of pleasure to be got out of handling it, and, as a result, his eyes were opened, and he said hard things about the miser no more. I understand now, he says, the delight that that old ragged wretch, starving himself in a crazy hovel, takes in stuffing guineas into old stockings and filling earthen pots with sovereigns, and every now and then visiting his hoards and fingering the fat pieces and thinking over all that they represent of earthly and angelic and diabolic energy. A miser pouring out his guineas into his palm and bathing his shriveled and trembling hands in the yellow heaps before him is not the prosaic being we are in the habit of thinking him. He is a dreamer, almost a poet. Think of the significance of the symbols he is handling. Symbols? Symbols of what? Symbols of power, to be sure, answers Sir Walter Scott. 
for in the fair maid of perth sir walter has given us a miser his name is henbane dwinning the apothecary hear him in his own defence henbane dwinning he says as he gazes in delight upon the hoards which he has secretly amassed and which he visits whenever the fancy takes him henbane dwinning is no silly miser doting on pieces for their golden lustre it is the power with which they endow the possessor which makes him thus adore them and he chuckles over the reflection that the smile of beauty the dagger of revenge the intoxication of pleasure the control of fields of fair flowers and forests of rich game the favour of courts the honours of kings the pardon of popes are all through their virtue at his beck and call yes symbols and symbols of power says the poet the contents of that old glove will buy him the willing service of many an adroit sinner and with what that coarse sack contains he can purchase the prayers of holy men for all succeeding time in this chest is a castle in spain a real one and not only in spain but anywhere he will choose to have it all these things and a thousand more the miser hears and sees and feels and hugs and enjoys as he paddles with his lean hands among the sliding shining ringing innocent-looking bits of yellow metal toying with them as the lion-tamer handles the great carnivorous monster whose might and whose terrors are child's play to the latent forces and power of harm-doing of the glittering counters played with in the great game between angels and devils i must apologize for having detained the poet so long but i am most anxious to set the miser in a pleasant light before the eyes of my reader and nothing is more likely to brush away any old prejudices that the reader may cherish than the eloquent testimony i have just quoted the miser is guided by a true instinct it is right to hoard the only mistake that the miser makes and it is a mere matter of detail is that he hoards the wrong things he hoards gold and gold is not to be despised but there are things better worth hoarding even than gold and the miser who is really an adept at the game will quickly find them out i have just been reading the biography of miss annie j clow the famous principal of newnham college and one of the pioneers of our modern educational system it is a beautiful and noble life but i was impressed by the insistence with which miss clow urged upon the young ladies under her charge the importance of storing the mind in youth with beautiful memories the average person can she insisted furnish himself with experiences that costing neither time nor money will nevertheless yield infinite satisfaction when seen in the retrospect of the years miss clow reminds me of henry rycroft lovers of george gissing will remember that when rycroft realized in the days of age and infirmity the exquisite pleasure afforded him by the recollection of youthful strolls in the fir copse in the primrosed woods in the poppy-sprinkled cornfields and in the meadows full of buttercups he was filled with remorse at the reflection that he had spent so much of his time amidst conditions that provided him with no such pleasing retrospect i remember once chatting with a man who had lost his sight in a colliery explosion he was telling me that every day of his life there rushes back to mind some little thing that caught his eye in the old days the squirrel that he saw in the beech trees the daisy chain that his sister made as they sat together in the summer fields the column of spray that dashed skywards when the waves broke against the cliffs the swallow that he watched as it skimmed the surface of the mill-pond and returned with a captured fly to the nest under the eaves 
the bare branches in the forest bowed down with their heavy freight of snow the glow of sunset the gray of dawn the glimmer of twilight the merry twinkle of a boy's eye the soft crimson of a girl's blush he could never express his gratitude that his mind was stored with thousands of such images i have no stones to throw at the old miser i am sorry for him the boys at murdstone called him old father grab whilst my hostess at the refreshment rooms called him the miser of murdstone creek and on the whole her name for him is more pathetic than their nickname in his great chapter on the morality of words archbishop trench instances the word miser as a distinguished example of a word having in its very composition an attestation of eternal truth the words miser and misery come the archbishop shows from the same root is it strange then he asks that men should have agreed to call him a miser or miserable who eagerly scrapes together and painfully hoards the mammon of this world by calling such a man a miser the moral instinct lying deep in all hearts has borne testimony to the tormenting nature of this vice to the gnawing pains with which even in this present time it punishes its votaries to the enmity which exists between it and all joy the man who enslaves himself to his money is proclaimed in our very language to be a miser or miserable man here therefore we have one of those rare cases in which the name is truer and more expressive than the nickname old father grab cried the boys of the township and there was derision and resentment in their cry ah the miser of murdstone creek said our hostess at the tea-rooms and in her more exact description there was an undertone of tears george eliot in introducing us to silas marner the miser of ravello discusses with us in her pleasant way the miser's singular passion she thinks that it arises from our human love of completing sets of things let her state her theory in her own way have not men shut up in solitary confinement found an interest in marking the moments by straight strokes of a certain length on the wall until the growth of the sum of straight strokes arranged in triangles has become a mastering purpose do we not while away the moments of inanity or fatigued waiting by repeating some trivial movement or sound until the repetition has bred a want which is incipient habit that will help us to understand how the love of accumulating money grows into an absorbing passion marner wanted the heaps of ten to grow into a square and then into a larger square and every added guinea while it was itself a satisfaction bred a new desire we like to complete a score and then a hundred and then a thousand and then a million every cricketer knows what i mean how he loves to complete a century to be bold at ninety-nine is an exasperating experience the difference between ninety-eight and ninety-nine is a difference of one but the difference between ninety-nine and a hundred is enormous i am sorry for the miser too because his hoard does not increase automatically as it would do if he entrusted it to a banker it does not like old wine improve with age it is at this point that the memory has the advantage of the miser when the miser goes to the old stocking in which he stored five hundred sovereigns he finds five hundred sovereigns there they are sovereigns still and there are just five hundred of them but when after a period of time you go to the memory you find what was once a very little thing 
but to what a great thing it has grown the buttercups in the fields of childhood have become part of life's most precious hoard or look at this good-bye steerforth said david copperfield as he looked into the face of his friend for the last time good-bye he was unwilling to let me go says david and stood holding me with a hand on each of my shoulders good-bye he said at last and davy if anything should ever separate us you must think of me at my best old boy come let us make that bargain think of me at my best if circumstances should ever part us they parted and davy never saw steerforth again until he saw his face upturned in death tossed ashore by the waves after the storm and the shipwreck think of me at my best it is one of the deepest of our human cravings and it is the charm of that secret hoard that memory treasures that it answers to that passionate yearning for our memories are the most charitable and kindly things about us the memory is rarely guilty of harsh judgment or of slander she speaks well of almost everything and everybody she accentuates the pleasurableness of pleasure making many things much more attractive in retrospect than they seemed in reality she robs pain of much that is revolting like the ivy that creeps over the crumbling ruin and imparts a beauty to deformity the trying and exasperating things of life are made to appear romantic or humorous as we tell the story years afterwards nothing says the great american can be so perfect while we possess it as it will seem when remembered the friend we love best may sometimes weary us by his presence or vex us by his infirmities how sweet to think of him as he will be to us after we have outlived him ten or a dozen years memory thus contrives to see the most mundane and unalluring objects through a kind of golden haze the miser's pence never by any chance turns into pounds but in the memory all our geese become swans but most of all i am sorry for the miser because he is always oppressed by the limitations of his wealth he always has one pile that is incomplete and it vexes him it makes him miserable miser i could not help thinking of the miser of murdstone creek yesterday when i was preparing to preach on the unsearchable riches i was struck by the various translations dr weymouth speaks of the exhaustless wealth of christ dr moffat renders it fathomless wealth whilst dr jowett tells a story once he says i heard dr rendell harris read the chapter in which these words are found and he read from his pocket greek testament and gave his own translation and i remember how when he came to this passage he threw out his arms in a wide gesture as he repeated the words the unexplorable wealth of christ we had a suggestion of a vast continent not yet tracked out with roads only here and there now here is the collection unsearchable riches say the authorized and revised versions with a thought of the height and mystery of this invisible treasure exhaustless wealth says dr weymouth with a hint at its everlasting duration fathomless wealth says dr moffat with a suggestion of immeasurable profundities and unplumbed depths unexplorable wealth says dr rendell harris as he thinks of its continental breadths and uncharted immensities let us hope that some home missionary or bush evangelist will look in at the hollow tree down the gully and make the old miser's eyes to sparkle as he unfolds such astonishing and unexpected treasure. End of part one.
Chapter 9. Recorded by Olivia.